This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This pine tar for breakfast is brought to you by Hatfield Quality Meats, makers of delicious Hatfield Phillies Franks. Today... We got Chad Durbin on again, but he's going to be joined by a bullpen mate and myself, Brad Lidge, the perfect Brad Lidge, right here on Pine Tar for Breakfast. What up? And welcome to another episode of Pine Talk for Breakfast. I am your host, Kevin Franzen, at Kevin Franzen on Twitter. And another KBO, Korean Baseball Organization, filled morning. But look, here's what's great. 08. 08 and great. Hmm, go figure. Brad Lidge, Chad Durbin, how's that sound? Well, look, here's the deal. You probably don't want to hear me talk too much. I know, people, it's all about the 08 team, so let's get right to them. Let me introduce them. The Pine Tar for Breakfast podcast has two of the best, uh, two of the best people I know, two of the 14 relief pitchers used in 2008. How about that? Only 14 of you guys were used in the entire season in that bullpen. Seven wins combined in the regular season. 42 regular season saves, mostly uh, by Brad, and 155 regular season season Ks, mostly by Brad. Uh, we got Brad Lidge and Chad Durbin. Welcome, boys. How's it going, Frandy? I'm good. Go, I'm good. Anytime to like try to like bag on Durbin because it's like the one of the hardest things in the world to do. Because yeah, it's, it, it it's tough. So I, I'm just gonna go with your 92 plus strikeouts in 08 his 63 you know it's i mean it's no big deal but i mean i just had to well we went about our business a little bit (laughs) you had 87 you had 89 innings he had 69 something like that it's like 87 and 87 and 69 innings combined or respectively how about that yeah everything he did was way sexier than anything i did so that was, that was that was my whole goal out there. I wasn't trying to get the job done. I was just trying to make it look good. That's what it's supposed to be. And, well, see, <laughs> no. you made it look good, and the hitters just looked terrible. Was that no, I'll tell you what. Honestly, like, I, I can't remember how many times during the course of that year where Derbs would go in, and we, like, really needed a double play ball. And literally on the first or second pitch, you'd get a double play ball, and, you know, the starter would exhale on the bench. And I was always like – I have zero chance of getting a double play ball when I go out. Like I can admit that I don't have that pitch. I will. So I had to get a strikeout. He he could get in and get two outs with one pitch. I had to get, you know, two outs with like 20 pitches. So, well, yeah. Okay. We make sense. But at the same time, I, I think it's a, it's funny you bring that up because you talk about the, the starting pitcher exhaling, right? He goes in and there's this anxiety 
uh, I had Durbin on, what, a week ago, two weeks ago, and we were talking about how your pen was so different because it was like you guys rooted on each other. And so the yeah. moment – so you have the anxiety that exhale by the starting pitcher. What was the pen like? When Durbin would come in and do his job like that, because I know what most are going to do and say when you've got the final strikeout is just go you know nuts because you win the game. But for Durbin, uh, 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 you know, middle relief – perfect you know peace and link in that in that bullpen chain what was that like for you guys well pitching behind behind derbs was awesome because you knew he would go in and you know sixth seventh inning whatever it was he'd get the job done he'd get his two-thirds of an inning sometimes it was an inning and two-thirds whatever it was but he would complete that piece you know like i said he made the starter happy and then he set everything up for us in the pen so what would end up happening is, you know, JC would get his guy and Madsen would get his guys. And I knew I never had to pitch more than the ninth <laughs> because everybody in front of me always got their job done. So it was awesome because Derbs would go in and, and set the table uh, for the rest of us to stretch when we were wanting to stretch, to be able to continue our routine because we didn't have to, you know, go in an inning earlier or, or you know, Chad goes in and doesn't get the job. So then Madsen and JC have to go in earlier Then maybe I go in in the eighth. That like literally never happened the entire year. So for us, like when he went in, it was like, okay, now I know exactly what I'm going to pitch in this game. We don't have to worry about it. So it was really like, I mean, honestly, all those pieces had to go in line for us to be able to perform our best. And that's why we cheer for each other because we knew when everyone went out there and did their jobs, if they did them, uh, you know, like they'd been doing all year, it allowed us to, to be in our routine more, which meant we were going to do better too. Derbs, did you feel that? I just, you know, I was really worried about what it looked like when I jogged in. Should I run faster, be more broad-chested, you know, be more like the rest of the guys? Like Todd Coffey? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Hamstrings are just screaming bloody murder on their way in. Um, You know, for for me, it was a little bit different. Uh, Second, third inning, if the situation ended up being a little complex out there, I might get a phone call. Um, You know, get them up, you know, get them ready, and then – Hey, you know, call off the alarm. You don't have to cover three innings today because our team was so good on the offensive side that we weren't out of games. Yeah. It might be seven to one in the third. And they're like, Hey, if we can hold them right here, we're going to win. Like we're going to score seven, eight runs. They've got their fifth going. Two of their best relievers are down today. Let's go. Let's, let's ruin their entire next week by just, you know, derailing, derailing them. And I think that's what I think we had that feeling down Mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with like that offense, just, you could see the guys, we joked about it. Mick would joke about it. Cause you had to go to the second level. Mick you know, joking? No way. Bullpen. And they, you those guys would walk by and you're like, look how scared they are. They, they're so scared to be here right now. And the truth is they'd run by and we would think that and you're like, oh, they're about to give up a three spot and they're hoping to just give up a three spot. Um, so if we could just hold it there and, and, you know, sometimes I'd know, Hey, there's two lefties coming up. And I look up and both JC and Scotty are going, I'm like, Oh, it's my last guy. No matter what happens, this is it. Um, so there's a lot of cushion there and getting into that role. It didn't happen right away for me. I came in, um, in April and May and it was like, Hey, you might come in, you might spot start. You don't know when you're going to throw. Um, and then as the season progressed and, and it's so good to be a reliever in the seventh, eighth or ninth inning, with a team that's winning and you're on the positive side of that, you're cushioned. Like you can't fall five runs earned. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't happen. So there was a lot to that pen that really played out well 
um, you know, over the course of that year. And, and guys stepped up when they needed to. When they had bad outings, it was it was cushioned by a three spot with our offense. So well, it looked good. You, you said something, though, that just triggered something for me because all of the years I've played baseball, I felt like the, the only times where I didn't hear relief pitchers or pitchers bitch about it, this one thing was on winning teams. And that was when you saw that two lefties were coming up and you look back and you had Scott Air and you had J.C. Romero warming up, you you knew that this was your last guy. It might have, like, you're like, I could get him, but at the same time you're like, I'm going to pass a baton. And yeah. great teams, not good teams, hit. great teams know that and have those guys. That to me, that to me is still the 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 one thing when I look at you guys, uh, you're selfless, and and it's I don't know if it starts with you, whether it starts with you know Brad, I, or does it start with you know Dubes, you know, because he he was a, a hell of a pitching coach for you guys. We looked I, really good at it, right? Go ahead, Brad. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean honestly, I I think that it takes a, a combination of personalities that. Um, are, are kind of complement each other. And, and then it takes like, you know, it takes individuals to really be selfless people and, and, and really be okay with, Hey, I'm handing the ball over to the next guy. And if he gives up my runs today, so what, you know, we get a team win. I know this guy nine out of 10 times is going to get a job. I can't remember there mm-hmm. ever being a time the entire season where, you know, a guy would go in, you know, maybe it was Derbs or whoever. And, and maybe, you know, somebody came in afterward and cashed in one of his runs. I don't, there was never a time where Derbs wouldn't be right on that step saying, great job, way to go. We really had each other's backs. And, you know, regardless of the performance out there, we always made sure that everybody else in the pen knew that, hey, we have each other's backs. We all appreciate what we're doing. We all know we're trying our hardest. So, we, we just had a great, I think, collection of, of, you know, personalities down there. And you get some weird bullpen mixes over the years, technically <laughs> the same thing, where you got guys that aren't always, uh, you know, seeing eye to eye or on the same page. I mean, some guys are out there, uh, you know, knowing maybe they get traded, you know, halfway through the season. They know they're going to be a free agent. And all they, you know, really need to do is just get out there and make sure no one cashes in their run. So they get pissed off if they're taken out of the game. And then somebody gives up their runs, and they're not there to give them a high five afterward. So, but that was like the total opposite demeanor of our bullpen in 08. Uh, but it definitely happens. And, and there's a lot of guys that aren't always out there thinking about the team or thinking about the bullpen as a whole. But when you do have a great, you know, mix of guys doing that, great things happen. So it's fun when you look at uh, great offenses, uh, you know, great pitching staffs and the bullpen as Belichick would all, you know, playing complimentary football. You guys played complimentary baseball. And so on the mental side, we always talk. I feel like just in general, right, whether it's sports talk or or the the baseball network radio and, and, and you know, for you, Brad, and myself, uh, Derbs with just every endeavor because we know you're a leaguer and you, you have all these endeavors going on. But the way you guys talk is about each other, right, and it's complimentary. How much on the mental side for a pitcher does it matter to have that offense that you had? Right. So you don't have to make that perfect pitch and you end up making the perfect pitch. But the moment that you feel like you have to, that's when things go awry. Well, I'll take that. Um, It was more necessary. My stuff wasn't as good as the rest of those guys. Um, The confidence that came with the freedom to be able to, you know, try to hit that Nats ass on, you know, or or buy into a pitch, maybe a sequence we haven't thrown. And Chooch is just like, you know, fist pump. Hey, we're going to go front door on this guy. And you're like, ah, I've not had, I've never thrown a front door cutter before 2008. 
And I wore that pitch out that year because it wasn't on a hitter's radar. But I don't think I ever had the confidence to do that if the buy-in from everybody wasn't there. I mean, you got to think about Flash and Rudy Sienes giving up kind of their post as being those seventh and eighth inning guys to a bunch of younger kids coming along. Yeah. Um, their confidence to buy in. Jenkins buying in to Jason Worth. He's going to hit against the lefty. Yeah, I'm not going to get that at bat, even though I still feel like I can go do it. Jenks was a stud, but it was the buy-in collectively from the entire unit, all 25-plus, and, and then the separate unit out in the pen kind of uh, echoing that. I mean, I think Flash had, you know, a, a really big impact on that. Brad coming over and saying, look, I've been there, and this is what we need to do. Uh, Matson buying into not being this eighth-inning guy early on and kind of earn it. It was just complete buy-in across the board. That's the mental advantage you have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I just go, that's totally right. And I would just say this too. I remember early in the season, um, I had never been with an, I have been some great offenses in Houston or at least, you know, really solid ones. I had never been with an offense like the 08 Phillies. <laughs> and when we, you know, kept coming back late in games and, and getting wins like late in the games, um, I remember talking to Jimmy afterward or Jimmy Rollins after one of the games. And I was like, man, you guys are just doing such a great job with these, you know, clutch hits late in games. Cause it really like left a mark, like an impression on me after a month or two. And he's like, you guys keep doing your job. You, you keep holding the lead right there, and it gives us the confidence, you know, their lead. And it gets one or two runs. It gives us the confidence to know we can definitely get a couple runs late in this game. We do it, like, all the time. So he was like, you know, that really made a big deal, a big difference for us the first couple months is that when the other team got the lead early in the game, it never, you know, kind of snowballed and exploded where it was insurmountable for the offense. We know if we kept the lead at a certain point, if the other team was winning by shoot even three or four runs, like we were going to come back and win that game. So somebody in that bullpen was going to vulture a W out of that. That's good motivation right there. <laughs> Isn't it crazy though? That you, we both have, or you both mentioned the fact that the offensive side and, and, and even, you know, Jimmy responding to you, Brad, and, and saying like the fact that you, you guys keep doing your job makes ours, their mental side is now clear. Like, isn't that like, yeah. I believe in the analytics. I don't believe in all of them. I believe that they work because they do. They're just data, right? It's that's all the whole thing is, but this is not data. This is something you can't quantify. You cannot quantify confidence. You can't quantify calmness, right? I mean, there's none of that yeah. in there. And both of you, like the offensive side and the pitching side did that to each other. Isn't that crazy? Like the stuff that you'll never be able to put a number on. Ever. You know, and, and it exists now. Whoever wins this year, if they play 2020, they're going to have that combination of feel and analytics, you know, woven together. It's going to be weaved together. They're going to know. I, I know that was, you know, I talked to kids today and they're like, my, my exit velocity, this, and I've, I'm averaging this launch angle in the cage. Cool. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> can, can that equate to one, two against a guy throwing 92 with sink and you hadn't seen his breaking ball yet? You know, what's your plan now? Like, that's feel and that's confidence. And where is it going to come from? Did it come from the two guys that got hits or got out in front of you? And as a pitcher, you know, spin rates are awesome, but not every spin rate equates to having a great breaking ball or that you have the confidence to locate that fastball yeah. up when you've earned it. And I think that confidence and that repetition of confidence, it, you know, it's like that Doppler effect, that compound interest. You get the result more and more often the more you feel it. There were times when I went out there and I'm thinking – you know, it's pool holes and, and, you know, you just think about who you're facing. You're like, there's no way I'm getting these dudes out. Um, and then you're like, wait a second. No, I'm going to get them out. 
or if they do damage, I'm not going to let them, you know, I'm not going to let Matt Halliday, you know, see that first pitch breaking ball that he loved to see and just shoot me. He's going to have to hit it to, to right center, a cutter or something. But that confidence was there. Like, if I miss, I miss. Um, you know, we're going to score runs, or if they don't score runs, we're going to hold them, and that other team is going to be exhausted by the end of a three- or four-game series because they had to earn every single out against that offense and, and the, the equivalent on the other side. Well, I, I got to go back to something you just said right there, Derbs, because at the beginning you said, you know, whoever, if we have a season, whoever wins this thing is going to have, because you have to, right? You have to have both a feel and the analytics and that made me immediately just think of, you know, Charlie Manuel with the field and Jimmy Williams on the bench with the analytics before analytics were really talked about as such. <laughs> Jimmy Williams had notebooks on the bench and, and Chuck would just point to him and, you know, Jimmy would be ready to just blow him away with some stats. And uh, obviously, Charlie Manuel is not a guy that was going to go out there and be like, uh, you know, the numbers say this. So I'm taking this guy out of the game, even though I feel like he should stay in. No way. Chuck was going to stick with a guy if his gut told him to do it. And that's how he managed. And when you have that, and, you know, I don't think Jimmy Williams got enough credit that year for what he did on the bench in terms of the analytics, but um, he did a fantastic job too. And I had Jimmy as a manager in Houston, uh, you know, before then, and I knew he was an analytics guy uh, as a manager. But when you get the combination of, of one of the guys like, like Charlie Manuel, I think is about as good a feel of the game as anybody I've ever been around. And then Jimmy Williams, who just instinctually knows the numbers you know, like I said before, analytics were even really a big thing. He just knew them all, and he wrote them all down every day. You get that combination at the top, that's going to go a long ways too. Isn't that crazy? And then, we like, for me, seeing it, you know, this spring, Brad, you were experiencing it, you know, firsthand with Joe Girardi. The, guy, the guy's about analytics, but he's about the gut as well. And who yeah. knows what the percentage is on the whole thing? He gives you confidence. You know, it's not like a, a – I'm going to throw numbers down your throat. I'm going to, you know, you, you're going to do this, this, and this. There's a feel part, which I think the players respond to. And what you are saying about Jimmy and, and, and Charlie, I mean, it just, it reaps all that. It reeks everything of that. Like I have more feel, but I have the numbers. I have everything to back everything up. This is not just soul gut. Well, let me ask both of you this. Which one do you think comes first? Is it, is it that gut feeling Chicken. we should do this right now? Oh, Sorry. And then you turn to the analytics to tell you whether you definitely should not or that you definitely should. Is it validation or, you know, a, a built-in governor to the, the, the decision matrix? Um, you, you know, y'all probably have different or similar opinions on that, but what do you think, Brad? I mean, honestly, you have to, I think it depends on, I mean, what level you're playing at too. But I, I would say this, like, um, for me, if you don't have a good gut, the numbers don't mean anything because I, I just think you can, anyone can look at the numbers, put it that way. Anyone can go there and go there right away and make good decisions based on that. But if you have the feel first and then you have the numbers to back that up, I think that's the best scenario. I, I, I really still think that um, you got to have the feel of the game first and then the numbers complement that. You know, if you have the numbers, yeah, sometimes you can develop a feel after a while, but it takes a long time. The numbers can just be there. Having a feel of the game is something that takes a long time to develop. So I think that has to come first. I say gut to know the numbers because you mm -hmm. got to have the gut and the instinct to know of the player. What if that guy you know is a little bit nervous? Like you just have that, you're like, something's off. He's a little, he, no, I, you know, he's not going to execute where he where the numbers say he should. If I have yeah. that feeling, then 
don't I take that guy out? Or do I, I, I kind of, you know, send the pitching coach out and say, Hey, let's switch up right here and, and go to plan B knowing what I see right now. What with my eyes, I'm like, this guy just, yeah, maybe we should bring in someone else, but if I'm going to stick with him, let's change the plan of what we originally had because this guy's not the same. And so yeah, I feel you- like it, it's being able to recognize your players, right? Charlie was probably the number one man. It, it's so hard. I, this is not to toot my own horn, but I played for 4,000 win managers and Felipe and, and uh, Boach, Mike Sosha and Charlie, all different, all so different, but all knew the guys so well at some, like in some way it, it, it just, they had that similarity between them. And, and for me, it was being able to know the player and know what to push. And that's why they won so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really, you know, if, if you don't know the players, yeah, I think that's one thing that, that to your point, every great manager has to have first, uh, has to have the ability to be able to talk to guys and relate to them and, and find something in common with them so that that player can actually like be honest with them and upfront about them. And they, they know, uh, you know, if that guy's having a bad day, maybe this, I know that the numbers say, but he's, he's off today. And, or, you know what, maybe at the beginning of the season, you know, Derbs hadn't, you know, he wasn't the guy against lefties in the seventh or eighth inning, but then during the course of the season, hey, you know, Charlie Manuel's watching that cutter on the bench. Hey, no reason to get Madsen up today. He's pitched a couple days in a row. Derbs got a great cutter today. We're going to let him finish those lefties in the seventh and eighth inning because I can see he's got it. He's been on a roll. He's confident out there. Yeah, and, and that's something numbers can never tell you. Mm-hmm. So I agree. You have to have that um, knowledge of personnel. I think that's as important as any number you can get analytics wise. When uh, Derbs and I were talking uh, a little bit ago, we had discussed some things about, you know, going from where he was as a starter to being, you know, in camp with you guys, him and Eaton were going, you know, right. That was, it was you and Adam Eaton uh, and you end up in the pen. So Brad being a, a reliever already and a closer. So Chad comes into the pen for the first time, really as a sole reliever, was there a lot of do you remember a lot of interaction and in trying to 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 help him out maybe with a routine? I mean, I, I don't know how for me as a bench player, like going from an everyday player in the minor leagues and then certain times in the big leagues to being a bench player, two different worlds. I couldn't even I, you know, prepping for a game yeah. and, and, and mentally and all that stuff. But for for you guys, being a closer to Chad coming in a new role, what was that like? If you remember, well, I, I think the, the, the difference for Derbs is that when he was in the bullpens before, I mean, you know, Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were more of kind of a, of a long guy. You'd bounce back before, you know, back and forth being a four or five starter or long guy in the pen. So you knew that role coming out of the bullpen of a long guy. But when you jumped in there, you were going to kind of be more of a shorter guy. And so I think for that, the routine, well, I mean, put it this way there's guys you got to kind of, teach them the routine a little bit and then you know and it takes a while and then there's guys that are smart and they know the game already i i don't know maybe it took chad a week to figure it out that's right (laughs) it took him about a week to figure out you know how to get himself comfortable and get in the role and i think you know from that point it was just a matter of him going out there and doing it time and again and 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 kind of solidifying himself in that role but no i mean there are some guys that you have to kind of give them a heads up and you know hey maybe you shouldn't be uh you know talking to the crowd you know 
when you're when you're about to <laughs> warm up and you've got an out you're out away from getting on the mound and getting hot. But no, Derbs Derbs was a quick study. He he kind of knew he had a good idea right away, and and if if he didn't, he observed it quickly and and, and put himself right in where he needed to be. Well. Yeah, and I learned a lot from watching other guys warm up um, early in the season. I, I caught fire. I was I was as hot as I could get. I had I had a, a four month stretch that was like Brad's whole career. It was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, just, I got I got I got hot. I did really well, and I never got a chance to change my routine um, to maybe a lighter workload to get ready to go into a game. And I think I ran out of gas because of that. I learned a lot from that. Hmm. I warmed up longer than I should because I didn't know what what the feel was to be ready. Um, I'm sure now it's like 11.275 pitches and you're ready. The analytics tell us that's right. Right. Um, I'm being facetious, but it was a feel thing. And I, I overthrew almost every time. And by year three in the pen, by year two, even three throws in, tell them I can get the next guy because I got seven out there. Maybe, maybe I can finagle eight out of the home. Um, I say, I have to run in, it's a long run. We're not on the, the you know the, the foul line like we are in San Diego or something. You knew every situation was just a little bit different. Hey, it's humid out. I'm ready now, and all I'm doing is sitting chewing gum. Um, or it's a little chilly, like Colorado starting at 22 degrees. I'm going to need a little while. Give me going in the six to pitch the 11. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's <laughs> definitely different every time. Do you do you guys have like a, a rem- like? Can you remember the fastest you've had to warm up? Like, the, what's the quickest you've ever had to warm up? to get ready to go in a game. You've probably got some, some seventh inning, you know, early in your career games, Brad, where you had to get ready quick. Yeah. I think early in my career too, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I mean, I took it seriously. I just didn't really like, you know, I didn't realize how quick, you, you know, I know my first full season, 2003, throwing in that pen in, in Houston, uh, I didn't realize how quickly things could change out there. And I didn't realize like, Hey, you know, you need to be ready in the fifth inning because you could be coming in the sixth. Like later in the season, I was throwing the sixth and seventh uh, most of the time if I was pitching maybe the seventh. But uh, early in the season, I you know I was still still kind of talking to the crowd or whatever in the fifth inning. I didn't really put it together too well. And then all of a sudden, you know, hey, you got to get warmed up. You got to go in there if this guy smacks a home run. And all of a sudden, we take the lead. And that was really you know two outs, bases loaded. You're down by three runs. Uh, where the chance he's going to hit a grand slam, and then boom, he pops one. You got to jump on that mound. And then the next guy gets a quick, you know, rollover on the first pitch. And all of a sudden you're in the game and you just didn't give yourself time. So at that point, I always made sure that I got on, you know, and maybe after somewhere after 2003, I always made sure I got on the bump and, and, and just, I was going through any scenario in my head. If just in case this happens, are you going to have enough, you know, bullets down there to get ready to get in the game? Um, but certainly in 2003, I remember, I, I don't remember them specifically, but I do remember a couple times where like, there was literally a three run home run or a grand slam. And then the next guy grounded out and I had like literally thrown one pitch and then, Hey, you got to get in there. And it's just a matter of getting the ball and just whipping a bunch of the backstop as fast as you could. And then running in there uh, and hoping that adrenaline kicks in, but it is, and Derbs can tell you this, it's amazing what adrenaline does for you when you get out there. All of a sudden you got only eight pitches. You think you need 25 to get ready. Well, guess what? When you're, when you're staring at, uh, you know, whoever coming up, Larry Walker with somebody coming up, and, and, you know, he's the first guy you're facing. That adrenaline's kicking in hard, and uh, you're, you're going to get ready fast. There, there are two times. One, well, I had plenty of time, but it's a unique uh, outing where, where Brad had an incident where I don't think I've ever seen anybody else do this. Um, the first one was in San Diego. Um, he's out there. He's got a guy on third base, two outs in the ninth. Close, you know, he's going he's gonna to close the game out, get his save. 
And right before he went to throw, he dropped the ball while he was on the mound. <laughs> yes. He through through balking by dropping the ball. And it kind of put us all in like this, this state of, oh, crap. Like that game <laughs> over. I don't know who was hitting, but he wasn't going to get – he wasn't going to get on base against you. And, and you were on fire at the time. I ended up getting, like, one of the only saves I've ever gotten in, in you know, my career. Um, but I it remember. was one of those, like, So, oh wait, that God. was that was the one right there because there was 41 saves by Brad in the regular season, and then there was one save right there. It, it could have been that one. I think he might have had a three-day stretch um, <laughs> in, like, August where he, had, he got off. Um, and uh, I closed a game out against the Pirates. I think that was that year. Oh, nine might have been the San Diego one. Now, was yeah. this the same August that, that Ryan Madsen did the Cheetos in Dodger Stadium? That could have been. You remember him coming out with the Cheetos <laughs> on the inside of his uh, jacket, Brad? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, Madsen wasn't afraid. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about a guy that, that enjoyed coming out of the bathroom, wrapping toilet paper around his, around his spikes, and then going and talking to the crowd. <laughs> It was good stuff. Toilet paper hanging out of his, you know, back of his, uh, uh, back of his pants. Great stuff. Oh, it's so good. Well, that's yeah. like, the, that's the stuff that like will always last our, our stories within the, I feel like within a bullpen, you know, rotations yeah. have their things and, uh, you know, the bench life, the starters, but you're so spread out throughout the time. You guys are always confined together. And it's like, man, everything so it, comes out. It's, it's because bullpen bullpen coaches are, are much more relaxed than managers. I mean, if you're in the dugout the whole game and you're around your manager, you got to you know mind your P's and Q's. You can't be really getting off track and having crazy conversations. <laughs> the bullpen, unless you're Charlie. Well, unless, unless you're Charlie, Charlie, then you can have fun. That's yeah. for sure. But when you're down in the bullpen, I mean, but, but your mind still has to be on baseball somewhat. Like, you can be down in the bullpen the first five innings. Literally, baseball is the last thing that comes up. I mean, it, it's everything else. So – uh, you know, it's and the bullpen coach, obviously Mick or whoever, you know, they're in on talking about whatever. So it, you build this different bond and this different chemistry down there because, you know, when you're focused on baseball all the time, that's great. And that's what happens in the dugout. That's the way it should be. But down the bullpen, you better figure out a way to relieve some stress before you actually get that stress. It starts coursing through you, you know, in the sixth inning or seventh inning, whatever it is. So the first five innings, it's just like anything goes. One of the biggest moments in, in like my career, and it was a, probably a conversation that Brad doesn't even remember, but we were in the bullpen early in the season, and we're all talking about the nerves you have prior to going in a game. And I knew how I felt, like, and I'm sure hitters get this on deck. You're like, but the, the having to run in and, and cover that 340 feet from center field to get to the, the 60 feet, six inches, there's a lot of the fight or flight that kicks in and almost every time you're warming up, you have just right before you start to throw baseballs, you have this part of you. That's like, man, I don't, I don't need to do this to live. And you know, I'm, you know, there's, this isn't, I'm going to survive no matter what I could go be a school teacher. I don't need this kind of pressure in front of 45,000. Um, and, and then anxiety that builds up and he mentioned it in conversation. And I remember thinking he feels that way too. Like, if he feels that way and he's one of the best in the game, maybe it's more normal than I thought it was. And I'm not like this isolated, you know, variable outside of the, you know, the, the, the bullet holes. And I'm, I'm not an anomaly. I'm, I'm okay. And I can feel like that and still go out and execute. It was huge for me. Um, and it was one of those where I just – I didn't, like, react to it. I, like, took it, put it in a little box, and put it back up there. And I was like, all right, I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. 
Uh, but oh, up to that point in my career, I always felt like the other foot was going to drop. People were going to find out I sucked or I wasn't any good. <laughs> I've got everybody fooled. And I did in a lot of ways up to that point. Um, but that was one of those moments that really meant a lot to, I guess, the the mental culture to being in a bullpen. That's awesome. I, I You know, I, I got to say, I, I mean, I do remember that a little bit. And uh, I remember when I was in my first, also first full season, 2003, when Billy Wagner was down there. And he's, I remember him talking to me after a game one time and, you know, Billy could talk like he'll just, he would just start talking and, and really go for it for a while. And he was, you know, just kind of counseling me, I guess. I don't know if I had a bad game or what. And he's like, you know, he's like, you hear people say, you know, you can't be afraid of fear. You can't be afraid of failure. He's like, I'm scared to death of failing every single time I warm up. He's like, that's the only thing in my mind is don't blow it. You're going to blow it. So so I learned that from him. I was like, well, he's one of the best in the game, and he's scared to death when he's warming up because it's just a natural – you have all those nerves, all that anxiety and all adrenaline. Of course, you're, you're thinking through things, and you feel confident when you're pitching, but warming up is a special, unique time that every reliever kind of has on their own where you're going through a lot of stuff in your mind and battling a lot of things, especially if you're going through a rut. So everyone kind of feels that and has that. Trevor Hoffman has talked about it. He said, that's what drove me was the fear of failure. I thought about it all the time. That's what made me great. Uh, so it's interesting how everyone processes it. Some people talk about it. Some people don't, but everyone feels it. Yeah, I, I can speak on the position player side and, and being a guy that came off the bench quite a bit, pinch hitting late in the games, especially a game on the line. You are scared assless, if you know what I mean, Yeah. <laughs> in the on-deck circle because you're like, I you want to get it, – it's – it's you're so prepared and you want it so well for myself I wanted it so bad and it wasn't because uh it was for me it was I always took pinch hitting as it is the greatest team at bat because no matter what the guys on the bench know how hard this is and you like have to understand that if you get a hit like you're benefiting them they're going nuts for you but it's still that anxiety in the on-deck circle to face a guy like yourself, not Durbin, that was 0 for 3, but to face a guy like yourself, uh, it, it, it just, it, it drives you. It drives you insane. It drives you to, to, you know, that competitive side comes out of you even more because you're like, I want it even more. I'm going to get this guy. You don't, but it's still like, it's there. The relief, yeah. the relief pitcher and the pinch hitter, I am not saying it's the same, but the mentalities I feel like are very similar. No, I, I, and Brad did both. He, he did the, the sixth, seventh inning and earned his way into the eighth and then the ninth um, with Houston and, and made their run. I mean, they were fantastic during those years. Fantastic. Um, what, what a roster. They were fun to watch. Um, but for me, it was uh, – I didn't have the guys like Billy Wagner. I had them on our teams. We had – they weren't Wagner. I mean, Batalico was a very good reliever. He's not Billy Wagner. And I love, you know, Bo. Um, and I had – Great thought doing here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, he, he made me grab beers on the plane for him nonstop for about two years straight. So um, I've earned the right to at least, uh, you know, pull the grenade and, and toss it at him. But um, I had uh, Todd Jones with Detroit as I was kind of transitioning, and he's fa he's a phenomenal guy. But he was it was such a, a he was a, a cool cat. He was different. But if he had a bad game, he literally like wouldn't talk to anybody for an entire day. And we'd make fun of him. Like, are you serious right now? Like mm -hmm. we're in this with you. And he's like, I just suck. I should probably quit. Um, you know, <laughs> this has been a terrible idea. Look at me. I'm out of shape. I got this belly. I couldn't run out of sight in a week. I mean, he would go like on this diatribe and you're like, Oh man, maybe he shouldn't pitch today. Let's call down. 
like hey, our boy's in a bad spot and they're like no that's how he is all the time he's a, he's, a, he's and he's not a mental midget it was just his it was kind of his way of uh of self-deprecating and getting it out of his system and dealing with that anxiety and i just didn't want anybody to know any of the doubts that i was thinking uh, because it did it drove me um i needed to be in a pressure cooker in philly you know pitching in kansas city or cleveland with ten thousand people and I mean, you give it up, and the next day they're like, hey, man, you'll get them next time. We love you. Philly's not doing that. <laughs> they're telling you, like, AAA's not going to get it done. Maybe KBO, um, <laughs> maybe a little high A, but this ain't going to get it done. You need to you need to beat it. And I think that pressure, um, that, that you, it's palpable. You can literally, like, smell it. Um, you just – you didn't want that feeling, and you didn't want to let guys down. And I think that's what the advantage of being – and that, that circles back to you being a pincher. You don't want to let guys down. Your manager believed in you to put you in that spot. You've worked really hard. You're hitting, got, you're hitting coaches, have been in there and said, this is what they're probably going to throw. This is what we worked on in BP. And it means a lot you, when you come through. I mean, it means more than it does in a regular season at bat. I, I don't know how it is for you guys. I know you've had your conversations plenty with, with Charlie. Uh, but, you know, playing for Charlie and, and being a guy off the bench for Charlie, um, there was multiple times he's like, Fran, hey, hey, uh, I'm saving you. You Don't get down here in the sixth inning. You're not pinching in the sixth. You're pitching in the ninth. I, I need you. And those little conversations, those tiny conversations, meant the world to me. Whether or not I got the job done again, but I knew Charlie Manuel wanted me for the ninth inning or wanted me for the eighth that I was just like, whoop. You know, I, I felt even better. I mean, Brad, look, oh, wait, you're perfect. In the first year with, with the Phillies, uh, I, I think it was very easy for Charlie not, you know, probably didn't have the, the many conversations about your role um, other than the first day. Like, Oh, by the way, you're the close. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You already knew you're the closer. Okay. We get that whole thing. But were there certain things that Charlie said to you, Brad, that, that I don't know, that might be different than any other manager you had been around that, that yeah. maybe brought out that uh, I, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> say well, perfection because it, it you've had such a hell of a career before, you know, coming in. So it's not like saying it, it, it's just something to added to it. I mean, listen, he, so 2008, maybe things were going great, but 2009, they were not. And 2009, he stuck with me over and again. And, you know, because, you know, you're, you're having a bad run shoot. I remember Jimmy at the beginning of the year uh, was having a bad run and, and, and Chuck's like, no way am I taking him out of the leadoff spot. Right. And Jimmy's confident because of that. I was having a bad run. Chuck's like, listen, you're my closer. I'm not taking you out of that run. I don't care. And I think the biggest thing is that eventually, like 2010, I came around, started having a, you know, a much better season again after 09. But when you get to a point where you understand genuinely, hey, this guy's got your back. Like he literally, for me, the coolest thing about Charlie Manuel, and no, I've never been around another manager like it, is he literally didn't care at all what any media said. Like he just, it never crossed his uh, you know, the path to, or never, never was something that he thought was important was to, to, to look at what people wrote about him. He just never cared about that. So if you don't care about that and you're, you want your guys to know you got their back, you know, the, the media can come in and ask you a thousand questions about when are you going to take him out of the role? When are you going to make this change? When are you going to make that change? It's a tough, it's a tough thing for a manager tonight to not bite on that, to, to hear that a lot and to not get taken down that path and start to say, maybe I should, you know, you hear it over and over by the media, but when you genuinely don't care about what they say and you only are going with your gut out there, it's going to eventually pay dividends. And it's going to eventually, you know, reward the, the players are already getting rewarded. It's going to eventually reward the wins and losses column too. And Chuck was just so good with that. He was just so, 
impressive to me that that he literally just he was going to do what he was going to do and the media could you know the media in philly could get crazy didn't matter to him that's why he was the perfect guy for philly how about you derbs and in, in your role that you had that you know trying honestly trying to earn more right you wanted to get more you're going to each outing gave you more and, and, and like you said you got hot like you are hot but you got hot during that time so well, you know, I think of it this way sometimes and, and maybe coaching, you know, kids we have a 13 year old team this year and thinking about different ways uh, to communicate with them or, or manipulate the situation. And I have my own kids. We have three kids and I tell each one of them every night that I love them the most. Okay. Psychological yeah. warfare. Eventually they're going to figure it out when they're older. Like, Oh, dad told me this. Well, he told me the same thing. And there's, there's that aspect to maybe the bottom 15 guys on a roster. Okay. Top 10, you're going to stick with no matter what, because they're the top tier of the league and they're going to perform. And if they have, if they perform badly enough, I'm going to boot them. But the bottom 15 guys on a roster, I feel like is a, it's a different management. He might've walked by every single guy and said what he said to me, but just like he said, Hey, I'm going to need you in the ninth, not going to pinch at you now. He might've said that to four guys, (laughs) but it doesn't matter in your head. That was you. And I think Charlie did a good job of that. Days I needed him, it was odd how many times I'm walking back up into the clubhouse and he's walking next to me. I don't think that was an accident. Hmm. Like now at the time, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I probably needed to hear that. He probably waited and talked and BS with people or whatever until it was my time to walk by. He's like, hey, Dirks, you know, um, you're going to go out there again. I'm going to pitch you again. You know, I don't care who's hitting. We need, you're going to throw tomorrow. I don't care. And, and it was that confidence, like, yeah, it just sucked. And I wasn't good the outing before, but he's going to keep running you out there. That confidence went a long way, especially as I was learning how to be a reliever. And I think there's that, you know, that, that feel that you just can't get over. The analytics say, don't throw Durbin tomorrow. And mm-hmm. his gut says, well, if we want him to throw next week in a really important series, we need to get him right before then. So if I've got to just bury my hit, my pinch hitter against some, you know, some guy that he probably shouldn't get a pinch hit against, I need him to have the confidence that I'm not going to sit him for a week before it's time to go. So mm-hmm. Charlie did a great job of that. Jim Leland did a great job of that. I know the people listening to this don't care about Jim Leland and all that, but you mentioned. Some I do. Before. I like him. Oh, he was phenomenal. <laughs> he was the most honest guy. And fanatic Charlie has fanatic has still the greatest skit. Well, it's either one A and one B for me is. Jim Leland and, and Bruce Bochy, because you have the fanatic with the head, you know, and then he'd find his way down to the ground and not pick it up because that's Bochy's head. But the Jim Leland with the cigarette puts it out and then starts shaking right in front of him. Jim Leland would laugh so hard. And I, I like, I don't know. I respected him more for, for something with the fanatic than anything else. But Boach hated it, hated the head thing. <laughs> uh, that's why his knees hurt. His knees would have been fine if he wasn't. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to hell. Baseball hell. Um, yeah, those guys, Leland had, did a really good job of the same thing. And I was starting for them because you had Kenny Rogers with a, um, you know, he had a, a blood clot issue and they had to take care of it. And so I was a fifth starter with a team with an offense a lot like the Phillies had. That Detroit 06 17 yeah. was loaded. Yeah. And, and just, just do your job. Um, just go out and go give us six and give up three or four. We're going to win. Um, but he had a really good, he was very honest and very like, don't ask him the question if you don't want the answer. And, uh, I think the guys that patty cake around that type of connection with their players end up not getting the trust. I'd rather hear you're this close to going to triple eight and maybe not with this team. 
you know, this close if you don't get your act together. And that, that's a hard conversation to even have with someone, not let alone be the one that receives it. And those guys did a great job of just being dead honest. You two stay right there as we're going to take a quick commercial break with Hatfield. And we'll come right back with Brad Lidge and Chad Durbin, two key members of the 08 Phillies. When you want perfect Franks for a great game, nobody beats Hatfield, the official pork provider of the Philadelphia Phillies. When Hatfield's on the grill, you're guaranteed to get flavor as big as the game. Hatfield is dedicated to making game day Franks and sausages with the best taste and highest quality. And don't forget, Hatfield makes other American favorites like bacon, ham, marinated loins, and chops for all of your family's game time needs. At Hatfield, we bring the highest standards from our family to yours. Hatfield, winning flavor, game day, and every day. Visit simplyhatfield.com. The voices you hear, Brad Lidge and Chad Durbin, right here on Pie Tar for Breakfast. I'm your host, Kevin Franzen, at Kevin Franzen on Twitter. A couple more for you guys, and uh, Durbin kind of spilled the beans. He was talking about how you, like Brad, one of the the pitchers was asking about your slider grip, and you said it was one way. And then I believe it was Ryan Madsen, Chad Durbin kind of said, are you trying to screw this guy's, like, career up right here? What are you doing? (laughs) And you said, what? And you said, I gripped it like this. And then when you go come out of your glove, you had the claw. How true is that? Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess it's a little bit true. I guess there's some truth to that because in my mind, I was doing one thing when I, you know, I, I could, I could sell it to somebody and kind of tell them what I was doing. This is how I grip the pitch. This is how I release it. But when you go back and look on the video, mechanically, I wasn't really doing anything like that. So I just thought I was. But, but you know, yeah, like, like Derb said, like the claw, like I had kind of a, a weird topspin, I guess. I kind of came over the front of the ball and, and, and kind of uh, just got it to drop that way a little bit. I think it initially sprung from just terrible mechanics. And, uh, you know, I kind of fly off and I'd end up getting over the top of my slider instead of staying, you know, true to home plate and staying online and kind of making that normal comma. And so my mechanics were so bad that my slider ended up going top to bottom because I would just try and throw it as hard as I could. And then eventually somewhere along the line, I kind of just kept my fingers in that placement and, uh, you know, kind of figured out, hey, this actually, I can see the hitter swing. It works better when it goes down as opposed to, you know, right to left. So then I started kind of just, you know, doing that with the pitch. And then, you know, when I came over to Philly in 08, I, that was really the first year that I really tried to throw a lot more backdoor uh, sliders to lefties, which really helped a lot. And, and Chooch was great at framing that pitch and getting the strike called. So, you know, I eventually got to a point where you could kind of manipulate it a little bit more. But I don't know. I'd try and teach it, and people would be like, I don't think that's what's going on. And I'm like, no, that's it. Just keep working with it. So I, I, I don't know who I was kidding. Isn't it, isn't it funny? I, I, I actually bring that up for a reason, because I think in today's Twitter, uh, let's say uh, hitting Twitter, right? Um, yeah. You have a lot of these know-it-alls and, and, and blowhards that are just trying to sell something like they know stuff more than the other. And it's like, okay, great. You're, you're, you're trying to live your life. I get it. But you're downplaying a lot of things that happen within a, a game. And you said something right there that you were like, you could sell things because that, that's the way you felt, right? Like you feel yeah. like you're, you're doing this. You're teaching the way you felt on certain things. Well, hitters, they claim, we all claim like staying on top of a baseball, stay there. You know, that that's, that's a big thing. You can go and break down the film and maybe we're not, maybe we do have that slight, but it's that mental part again. It's like, I don't understand why people can't understand certain things lead to the other. Like you take that away and you're trying to teach the other way. Well, 
probably not going to happen the way it's supposed to, right? It's just yeah. uh, how your mind tricks your body. It, it Does it ever fascinate you guys how where we are in our Twitter world uh, of teaching, especially with, with, with kids? Um, listen, I know Derbs has been has been coaching kids for a while and, 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 and working with up. a lot of different levels, and, and, and I have too. Um, you know, especially the last couple of years with little league stuff and, and really getting after on that front, um, you know, working, you know, doing camps, whatever, making appearances with high school guys. There are so many things that, um, you know, you want to, you want to teach them the right way to do it. But at the same time, in the back of your mind, you also want to be like, nah, never mind, that's garbage. Cause when you get in that, when you get on that bump and you're facing that guy, you better just, you know, come out there and, and give everything you've got on this pitch. And you got to stop worrying about, you know, if this pitch works in this count and everything else, that's obviously a little bit higher levels. But it's just kind of funny how how there's these pre-programmed responses that we have as as coaches. You know, to little leaguers or or to even to big leaguer. You got guys I see in spring training, but then when you when you know that the guy's been there and done that, and you know maybe that he hasn't had success in a certain moment, maybe it's time to take a step back and just be like, you know what? Throw in the trash everything I just told you. Go out there and just compete. And on that particular day, if you're feeling something go with it because you're the only one at the end of the day that's got to answer for what happens out there. So, you know, there's just a, and, and that's obviously at higher levels and stuff too, but little leaguers, you're not telling them that exactly, but you know, you, you want guys to go out there and just compete because we do throughout so many numbers and so many mechanical things. And here's how you improve spin rate and here's how you do this. But if you get out there and you don't have that feel, if you get out there and you're just going with that, as opposed to like knowing how you feel and seeing how the hitters reacting to certain things, then you're never really going to have success. Even if you've got an incredible spin rate, incredible mechanics, and you're doing everything right, you can still go out there and fail way more than you're supposed to. So I was on a, a, a webinar the other day with uh, you know, three guys I pitched with in the Indians bullpen. Uh, Matt Miller, who is a side armor, um, Jake Robbins, who was a, like a 95 mile an hour sinker guy, and uh, Jack Cresson, who was, um, you know, from 99 to like 2004, was a heck of a reliever for uh, Minnesota and, um, and Cleveland, where I was with him. And we were talking about how to, I guess, not fight every guy that's out there doing that stuff because they obviously believe in it or they believe in, you know, the, the black side of the ledger where they're trying to make money. Um, but the, the feel, it comes back to that. And, and then we, every one of us, I feel like on that call, it was if we had we had to be good at one thing it was going to be competing like we have to compete above and beyond everything else and the rest of it is kind of up to the dna you have and and your ability to stay healthy and all those other things but that was and, and i actually had a guy that was on the call pat hallmark i played in the minor leagues with he's the coach at ut san antonio now and he fired off of me he's like i couldn't figure out when you were 19 and we were in lansing michigan why all these guys that just came out of college wouldn't pound the zone and yet you're the 19 year old that's just like f you f you f you and just throwing strikes um and he said i i i couldn't understand why but you just competed every time out there and it was what i had to do and anytime i let off the gas that there was all this doubt that crept in and it was like i'm just gonna go at every guy as hard as i can and if it's not good enough i can accept it and i feel like that is the same sentiment that works on the youth level high school select and all that stuff. But even as it creeps into where Brad's, uh, you know, son Rowan is, is playing and my, and my son, I have an eight year old and a 12 year old, the 12 year olds now to the point where I can push that fearlessness um, mm -hmm. variable at them. And, and if you fail, at least go out there 
and be aggressive in mindset. And if you're hitting and, and you're looking for a fastball and it's a fastball, take a rip at it. Like it's not, especially with umpires calling the zone, like Eric Gregg back in the day, um, <laughs> you know, everything's a strike. It's like Oprah handing out, you know, gifts. <laughs> so that to me is like, it's a huge thing for that, that, that mental mindset is it, I'm just going to outcompete you and you're standing 50 feet or 54 feet or 60 feet, six inches away. I'm just going to come out compete. If you beat me, you beat me. Um, that is the part of the, of the hitting guru um, stuff. And I, one of the things I asked Ochar when I went to uh, instructional league last year was all this stuff is awesome. And these are best competitors in the world. You know, one thirtieth of them. How are we teaching? How are we, you know, each, each side of the, each side of the ledger, how are we teaching feel to combat what we're being told is the right thing. This is what you're supposed to do. Like, how do we teach that? And how do we make it a competition inside of the cage? Or am I just going in and trying to, I mean, I like, I like the idea of, Hey, I've never been above 101.7 on my exit velocity off the tee. It's never happened. I don't know what the, that's probably way too high off the tee, but if that's the number and that's what I'm trying to compete with, then let's see what I can do in soft toss every, I mean, there's just a ton of that, that competition's there, but I think it gets lost when we start to, the, you know, the butthole slam shut when you get out there and you're trying to compete against another human being. And it, does it translate? Doesn't it translate? Um, so I think there's something to be said about the guys that are putting it out. Some of them are really intelligent. Some of them are hokey. So uh, it's hard to discern, especially for somebody that doesn't know. Parents sitting at home. I, I, I think what, what, what pisses me off with a lot of those guys um, is just – the way they are able to interact. Like we were talking about Charlie, how he was able to talk to each individual. It, it, it's different. And there's a feel. And a lot of the, I don't know, the, the, the hitting, the tweeting, or Twitter, hitting Twitter, whatever you want to call it, whatever, just all the gurus, is the way they interact and the way they, they try to downgrade what guys were. Or, yeah, this guy's not that good because he didn't do this. It's like, just stop. Like it, 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 I, I hate comparing guys in general because I feel like the moment you compare someone, you're taken away from the other. And guys earned the right to be in the big leagues, to be in that conversation or in basketball, whether it's who's better, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, or MJ. It's like, well, I have my opinion, but all of them are great. All of them are ridiculous. It, can, it can't take away yeah. from what's going on here. But I just feel like there's so much, and you guys talk about it, the competitiveness that's something you can't teach. And that, that is something that is, do you, do you feel like the competitiveness is driven? Is it taught? Is it, uh, something that you're born with? What, what, I mean, I, 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 I don't have an answer. I would say, I don't know if it's born with because I had an older brother of three years older that I always wanted to beat or, you know, be a part of like his group with his friends and, and compete with them. So maybe it was adapted right in that situation. I don't know. I can't tell you, but it, that's what it feels like. What about you guys? Uh, I, I mean, you know, the nature nurture thing, right? Like I feel like honestly uh, some people are just born with it and, and others learn it. And I, I don't think there's uh, you know, it, it's not like if uh, like if for me, for example, I didn't really have that competitive track and desire. Or at least I didn't think I did until I was somewhere like, toward the end of high school. And, and all of a sudden, I think one day, I just remember being out there and hanging my head. And it's funny, our, our catcher at the time, Josh Bard, who is now a, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the bullpen with the Dodgers, uh, was on the bench with the Yankees. He's been around for a little while. He was my like battery mate in high school. We had a, He we was had a catching what hit my first homer. 
Was he really? Okay, side note, you're bad. My bad. Um, but, you know, he came out there and he's like, it's time for you to get mentally tough, you know, point, putting his finger in my chest. And I was like, what? Like, you know, <laughs> I had never had anyone challenge me before. And I didn't realize that when someone did that to me, it like totally triggered a different instinct that I had ever felt out there. Like, I think people had felt, you know, put their arm around me, it'll be okay. And that kind of always made me feel like, okay, it'll be all right. But I would never pitch good after that. And then it was only until Josh Bard did that. And then Paul, Paul Maneri, my coach at Notre Dame, would always just go out there when I wasn't pitching good and grab my jersey and pull me down to his his level. I, I love Paul, but, you know, he was definitely not as tall as I was. He pulled me down to his level and he'd say, you know, he'd get in my face and let me have it. And, wow, like that did something totally different. And I feel like that made me way more competitive after that. But I had never known that when I was young. I wasn't born with that. So I think you can teach that and – you know, people respond differently to things. Sometimes people do need a pat on the back, uh, but more often than not, I think we're, we, we're surprised when we find out, hey, this guy needed a little kick in the butt in order to be able to go out there and be more competitive. But more often than not, I think people might need that. And obviously you just have to figure out when in their life it's appropriate to do that for them. Like, I know, you know, my son's 11, like it's not the right time yet for him to do that for him to get the best out of him. But maybe it'll be in high school when he gets there. You know, I got a lot of the same stuff, not necessarily from Bardo. I, he was in, yeah, he might've played some mind tricks on, on me and Ryan Ludwig in, uh, in AAA in 04. Same, same group that I talked about earlier with Jack Creston and them. We were sitting um, in Buffalo and he told both of us that we're, we're like definitely just 4A guys. We're just going to go up and down in our career and probably never really stick. <laughs> and I remember hating him for the rest of the year and he was we, we were roommates until Dusty Wathen was my roommate that year he's on that same squad uh Doosty um but Bardo was like he would he, he wasn't afraid to poke at you and try to get the most out of you and Ludwig yeah. had a great career better career than I did the rest of the way but we both had long careers after that and I asked Ludwig about it he's like man you remember what he said to us I was like yeah that we were like just <laughs> serviceable at the 4A level and I'm it it made me mad but he obviously had a, you know he, he's, he's doing what he's doing now and he's probably gonna be a head coach or a manager someday he's equipped like that but it took people like that I had basketball for that basketball in Baton Rouge Louisiana and Louisiana was a very six five you know jump out of the gym physical game and I had to out compete those guys those guys respected me because I beat them down court they might dunk on me I might call them hard but I'm gonna try to dunk on you next time or I'm gonna knock a three down in your face, and I'm wait, I'm wait, talk wait, 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 you dunked it? <laughs> Come on! I never threw one down in a in, uh -huh. in a, uh -huh. on anybody in a game, but I tried multiple times. I didn't <laughs> practice and stuff. The effort was there. Never in a game, but I tried. It was like I'm I'm gonna when it happens, I'm gonna embarrass everybody. Oh, <laughs> and, but that was the part of me like I want I wanted to outcompete that guy. Um, you know, I'd be the t guy at the top of the line talking to the guy shooting free throws. Do you know five out of 10 is 50%? And you know that probably won't go at Kansas. You're going to need to work on that. Um, just try to get in guys' heads. But the competition, you know, minor leagues with Kansas City was, was we, we succeeded a lot. We talked about that, Franny. That was a lot of the, the growth process and that growth mindset that everybody has. Now, I think sometimes it gets miscued, like the, the nurture and nature thing. Mm -hmm failing and we're not enjoying failure we just embrace the fact that it's going to happen and i'm going to learn from it and i think sometimes when you hear the growth mindset people are like oh it's okay you failed you know i still love you 
And, and that's not what that growth mindset's about. It is about, you know, having a path that's going to have those potholes on it and learning your, you know, learning how to deal with them the next time, how to get better and not just, you know, the, the give up when I see give up and, and, and I kind of have to back off because that 13 year old doesn't need me to, you know, pick, putting a saddle on his back. Um, but when I see give up, my fangs come out. Like I, I can't handle it. Like that's the work man fail all year go 0 for 40 and look bad doing it but keep trying keep working as soon as i see give up i literally want to call their parents and be like you need to be hmm. like pick something else piano something else yeah. but if you can't compete and, and be okay with getting hit in the face and and coming back and sucking and coming back like that's the guy you i mean there's so many guys that made it to the big leagues that weren't as physically equipped as the next guy but they out competed every day and ended up playing a long career. I mean, you really got to think about all those guys. I mean, we played with every guys in the minor leagues that were six, five and threw a hundred and they never made it. Yeah. And maybe it was injuries. Maybe it wasn't, but a lot of times it was their inability to handle failure <laughs> and be productive afterwards. Wouldn't you say that relates to that 08 team? I mean, in, in, in so many ways, because, uh, if you had failure, that's fine. The next guy was going to pick you up. And I, I think Derbs, you and I talked about it. Uh, you gave up the homer to, to Casey Blake and it, it wasn't a pitcher that picked you up. It was Matt stairs that picked you up. And you always have that look that whether it's, you know, now or then it, I got your back. I, I don't know. It just, it, all the, both, both you guys, the way you guys are describing things, I feel like it, it, it could all come full circle to that 08 team and how each other, you had each other's back. You were all competitive and then it, you guys were able to turn off that competitiveness to cheer on your your guy and and, and show him that love. Yeah, I you know I think I think you know it's it's when you're a teammate with somebody it becomes a little bit different. I mean, there's you know uh, there's there's a time where you have to push them a little bit and a time where where they just need to go out and get a beer or you know just not even think about baseball or whatever. So. I think I think we were pretty in tune with each other. Like we became pretty good friends early in the year and hung out a lot. And so we knew, hey, let's go get a beer tonight. Dude. Let's go get some sushi tonight. Or you know, let's talk about the approach on that particular hitter. Like what happened there? You know, there were times where we needed to to say, dude, look, I, I know you like that pitch, but against that guy at that time, it's garbage. And and so you know, we had to be able to be realistic with each other, but we also had to be there for each other. And I think. Man, that's one of the things I miss most about being in that bullpen, especially with that group of guys and and, and and all of us. You know, I think back about that whole pen. I mean, we're still tight today, but uh, we, we knew, you know, like I said, we had a great mix of personalities that wanted to take care of each other. It was unique in that way. Uh, but we also knew when to maybe light a fire a little bit or, or, or to, you know, put your arm around a guy's back and be, you know, and, and show them your support. Yeah, that, that group um... – the accountability that was there, the acceptance, the, um, I guess the runway that was kind of, you know, collectively built for guys. Uh, and, and you, you, everybody gets the question, which, which of the guys on that team were, you know, that were the true leader. And it just, it wasn't as simple as that. And I think that, you know, one, one team, you know, we win, you know, team win, um, you know, that to me was, it wasn't the first time I felt in my career, but it was the first time that I'd been participating at a high level. Yeah. And, and that part of it made me want to make the other guys that are closest to me in that equation better. 
And if that meant that I was talking to a, a guy about a sinker or talking to a guy about his approach versus, you know, the, the Mets, you know, whatever it was that was going to make us better. I was no longer in a survival mode um, as a player. And, and that is a, that's a real thing. Your first couple of years in the big leagues, when you're, when your thought process is no longer that, and it's about execution and adjustments and watching film and, you know, meetings, you know, on their hitters. I mean, all that stuff is enormously important to winning one extra game or two extra games in a year. And if you go the other way, um, you know, it's tough. I remember Omar Vizquel, the same old four team at Casey Blake and, and all those guys on it. And Omar was on that team. And you had Bob Wickman and some other older guys that wanted to just ride the young guys real hard, the Grady Sizemores, because Grady would get done. Casey Blake would grab a football, and it was the um, – you know, the, the, the old lines from uh, um, the movie. Uh-oh, we got ringy, ringy. Um, he would uh, he'd take the football, hey, surprise, surprise, grab yourself another shelf. Um, it, it was just this, the change in the guard. And I think our 08 team had a bunch of older guys that weren't going to hold that old school standard. We had a bunch of the younger guys that were going to, you know, come in with their new energy, yeah. and it was okay. It wasn't completely – off grid so I, I mean i think that was important to that see and that that's funny you bring up omar because with when i came up first couple years omar's the shortstop and all these other guys all these older guys are just riding you don't do this don't do that don't do this don't do that i remember having a conversation with a uh, a teammate in, in houston in in 06 um in the stands because i was running out too hard on a on a walk or a hit by pitch He's like, this is not college. This isn't high school. I'm like, okay, like, this is all I know. This is all I played. This is the same way I played the whole way through. It doesn't change. And Omar was there for me every step of the way because he always said, just be you. Always be you. Yeah. Play with that energy. If you have energy, use it. If you don't, if you're not an energy guy, don't use it. And it, and it, no, I mean, and it's, it, it makes so much sense because that was me. And it, it Omar was, <laughs> I can't, like, you That's got awesome. to experience it. He's so good. He was so artist. good. He's an artist. You've oh. seen some of the artwork he's done, the clothes You've seen he some of the damn clothes he wore. He wears. Like, he brings that to the and I, That's feel to me. That artistic yeah. pitching is an art. Hitting is an art. Taking a great route on a ball or making taking a different route on a ball than you probably should, but you get the job done. Like, that's the art of baseball. That's I really do miss, like, the shape of a, of a slider or cutter or, or curveball. And just I'm going to change it up right here in the middle of a game because I think I can make it move just a little different. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the art to it. And that's feel. And if you don't have like there's no analytic out there that's going to tell me when to change my metric or how like how that's going to affect a hitter. I'm going to sweep this one against a Frank Coor who hasn't seen it, you know, um, you know, just because he's seen so much of, of what I'm doing because I face him all the time. That's the part that Omar brought to the table, like him and Johnny Mack, uh, John McDonald, and, and obviously he took ground balls with Alomar. I used to watch them back in the day. Um, it was amazing what it looked like just in BP. Yeah. There was an art to all that, and there was an accept. They never drove uh, hard at the younger guys. I mean, you look, you need to be put in your place. You're put in your place. But let's not ruin their ability to help us win. Yeah. Because that's really what we're trying to do, right, guys? We're not trying to be the old guy banging the drum. We're trying to win. And if this helps, you know, I want Grady Sizemore at his optimum level. I don't want him feeling like he's got somebody looking over his shoulder. So I think that was a, a huge component of any team I played on that was 
uh, well equipped to win and and especially on the teams that went out and executed brad like for for you uh i mean look between the two of you and and i'm gonna i'll leave guys off i know i'm i'm sorry but todd jones 319 saves billy wagner 422 flash gordon 158 yourself 225 saves that's not even including the play for these guys and yourself the, the playoffs seeing the younger guys come in and, and accepting them and, and, and trying to make, you know, like Chad said, putting them in their place when they need to, but letting them be themselves. How hard or how easy was that for you as a, a veteran? You know, like when you're the closer, you're the, you're the, uh, usually the alpha male in that, in that pen. I, I mean, honestly, for me, it was, um, I, I guess I always felt like guys needed to come in there and, and, and feel good about what they were doing. Like we definitely had, you know, a, a patrol down there making sure they're doing things the right way to a certain extent, but never to the point where we're making them feel like they didn't belong down there or that they should not be there because it, as soon as that happens, it affects everybody else in the pen. It affects your team. Uh, and, and you know, what's that guy going to say about you when he retired a few years, you know, after that? Man, you know, maybe, maybe Brad had a good season, but that dude was a bum, man. I hated that guy. <laughs> I'd do anything except for, you know, except for hang out with that guy. It'd be the last thing in the world I'd do. So, um, I, I just, I never wanted a guy to come in there and, uh, and not feel like, um, you know, I, I think Omar Vizquel obviously kind of knew it before, you know, we say now, like we want people to be themselves and, you know, managers want guys to just go out there and whoever you are, be that guy, as you guys were just talking about, but, but there wasn't really vernacular for that, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now there is, but I think back then probably a lot of people instinctually knew, Hey, listen, if you want to get the best out of this guy, make him feel comfortable, you know, get him up there, get him in that bullpen, tell him some stories, you know, make him relax a little bit, kind of show him the ropes, give him a routine a little bit and, and let's see what happens. But I think we also all knew that, you know, you had to be tough down there in the pen. And, and if a guy couldn't take a little bit of heat and guys messing with him a little bit, it was going to be tough to go out there day to day in the bullpen and do your job because you're going to get a lot of heat from everybody else. So I think we kind of had uh, you know, a good balance down there when young guys came in, we're going to give them a little bit of a hard time. We're going to make them, you know, carry our beer, whatever. We're going to put a little bit on them, but we're not going to do it in a way where he feels like he's not one of us. We want them to feel like we all did this too, and we made it through, and you're going to do this, and you're going to make it through, and you're going to have a great long career. These are just some of the steps that we've all taken along the way. All right, last one for you guys. One of my favorite teammates of all time, Chooch. Yeah. Throwing to him being around him, yep. seeing the growth of Chooch. I mean, what when 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 you think Carlos Ruiz, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Go ahead, Derbs. So, I can when I came in, I'd uh you know, Costi was with that in that mm -hmm. 08 group and, and caught some games, but um it and no offense to Costi, it was really clear um which guy was managing you know the totality of being a catcher best and and Costi was a huge compliment to it because he got he got big hits and big situations and did certain things really well um but Chooch had this you know that he timed well he'd walk out there and get all over me um about just looking passive for a minute man you know you got to make this pitch you know or or I think maybe they're looking at our signs and we're going to go fastball and then curveball right here cutter cutter um his and I, I he was a locker mate too it was him on one side of me and uh and victorino on the other um and and Chooch did such a good job <laughs> i know that's it's a, a lot, lot of energy right there lots of energy yeah. 
It's but he was Chooch was funny. He was you know, he had great feel. We talk about gut and feel this whole time. Um, yeah. Huge clutch hits at moments. Uh, tons of energy. He was just you know he reminded me a lot of a lot of guys that I you know Pudge I had in in Detroit. Um, a, a lot of guys I had. He had. There, let me pick and, that up. I got that card. Oh, sorry. There you go. There you go. There's Pudge. Well, yeah, you Pudge, threw the Pudge yeah, card out. I mean, I just had, I just had to pick it up <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, but I had to learn a lot about how to man, how to how to pitch to each one of those guys, and I didn't have to do that with <laughs> with Chooch. He did such a good job of communicating with me how we were going to attack guys. Um, you know how we might walk this guy right here because I know you're good against these next two guys type conversations that you're not really like expecting um the panamanium you're not expecting that guy to have like i maybe he gets overlooked like charlie does sometimes because he's not you know harvard educated or something to me there were times where he'd say stuff and i'm like oh he is way more locked in than i thought he was (laughs) because he makes his jokes and he does all this stuff but man his heart and soul were on his sleeve the whole time and, and he did everything he ever needed to do to be loved in Philadelphia, but loved by his teammates even more. That was huge. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's absolutely all true. And I, and I think the biggest thing for me is I remember uh, somewhere in the first half of the season, I was like kind of thinking, man, this guy is, uh, you know, he's doing everything he can to make sure everybody on the staff is having success. And he was taking more pride in that than anything else. And there was a specific game where I remember in the first half of the season, I can't remember, it's maybe June, and he went four for four, and he had a big day. He had a bomb. He went four for four, and we lost like nine six or something like that. And after the game, he was sitting in front of his locker, you know, just pissed. And I hadn't really seen him pissed off before. And I just remember like mentally that picture in my mind, like he is so pissed off because he feels like he let down. I think Jamie Moyer was pitching. He feels like he let him down that game because he didn't call the game the way that Jamie, you know, up to Jamie Moyer's standards. And because of that, Jamie Moyer didn't have a good game. He didn't care at all about his four for four with a bomb. That was like the last thing on his mind. He was upset that he had let down our, our team and our pitching staff. Uh, and for me, like I never forget that particular game when I think about Chuch. And I also don't forget all the sliders I buried in the dirt that he blocked every single time. He had bruises up and down his arms and chest from uh, even with a chest guard from all the sliders I bounced everywhere. But you never heard the dirt. You never heard the uh, heard the dude say "ow." Like, I just don't think things hurt him. Like, he was so physically tough back there. He was, like, the toughest dude ever. I don't. I, do you guys remember a guy named Daniel Ortmeier? He, a cup of coffee with the Giants. He's one, one of my best friends coming up in the minor leagues, and he's a, a 6'5 monster, like 225, just shredded, faster than hell. He ended his year in, in, in 2005, and I think Chooch did as well on a collision at home plate. And it was a 6'5, 225 coming from second base, he put his his uh, Chuch put his ended up getting his face mask in in Dan's shoulder and left an indentation in there that he still has. Swear to God. <laughs> but both of them, even though they didn't remember at the time, they remember that collision. And I looked at Chuch and I said, "Did it hurt?" He goes, "Oh man, that hurt so bad, Poppy." He goes, "But man, that was cool." And you're like, "Wait, that ended your year? That ended his year?" He goes, "Because he goes." my teammates picked me up after that. You're like, wait, that's what you're going to get out of this, this collision that ended a season that like was everyone talked about in the, in double a for like three years. And you're going to talk about how much your teammates picked you up and had your back and do all that. And he's like, yeah, like that, that, that 
that shaped everything. I was like, oh my god, this guy, this, this is why he's the best. That's yeah. why Chooch is the man. Oh man, I could talk about him for days, but uh, I appreciate you guys coming on the Pine Tower for Bre- Breakfast uh, podcast. I could say that many times. Sponsored by Hatfield. Appreciate that. Uh, and uh, if we can do it again, I would love to because this, like this stuff. Whether it's the 08 team, all your teams, the things that you guys talk about are so similar um, in your own ways, but the competitiveness, the love that you guys had for each other are things that all successful teams should and will have is that love, that fight, and that, you know, have each other's back mentality. And I appreciate you guys sharing that today. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a blast. It's always good to uh, catch up with Derbs, of course, and, and you as well, Frandy. So, uh, yeah. Um, at this point uh, in my life, I've got a lot of uh, free time. So give me give me a shout. <laughs> uh, I'm not working. I'm not coaching. I'm uh, like you know I'm doing way too much yard work. So please take me away from it, dude. Between the golf courses being immaculate and people's yards, this I mean, look, flying <laughs> over houses and golf courses should be amazing right now. Yeah, if you could get on a plane, you'd you'd be able to tell that. You're gonna have to get out your drone though to do it. <laughs> yeah, All right, guys, I appreciate it. All right, Franny, awesome. have a good one, buddy. Thanks, fellas. Talk to you later. Bye. What a great time I had with these two, Chad Durbin and Brad Lidge. Uh, not only two fine gentlemen, fantastic pitchers, but great ambassadors for not only the Phillies, but the game of baseball. And I got to do that right here on Pine Tar for Breakfast, sponsored by Hatfield Quality Meats, makers of delicious Hatfield Phillies Franks. I appreciate you. For tuning in to Pine Tar for breakfast to listen to these two guys go back and forth. And until next time, peace. Kevin France out of here. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.